Welcome to the How to Health Podcast. I'm Dr. Lori Marvis, and today we have the amazing chef AJ. How are you? I thank you so much for having me, Dr. Marvis. I <laughs> Lori, please. Oh, um, Lori. Okay, well, I didn't know. I just figure people should probably know who I am when they maybe right. click on. <laughs> okay. Lori. Yes, ma'am. So well, I call you Lori when we're not talking. I, I just trying to be respectful. I mean, you went to medical school for four years. I didn't. So. Oh well, you know. I, yeah, I'm probably, yeah, I, I don't wear that in the, in a, in an informal setting. At least I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> you don't have to call me Chef AJ either. You can just call me AJ. All right. How's AJ it is. That'll work. Because I'm not a chef. <laughs> and I'm not a doctor, although I profess to sometimes act like one. Well, I think you may act more like one. We'll get to that in a minute because I had well, an interesting well, doctor interaction today. I feel like I know more about than doctors, at least where, nutri- I mean, where nutrition is concerned, not where medicine is concerned. Yeah, well, I, I think it's, we'll get into that because I had a doctor's visit today um, and had some very interesting conversation. I had to do it for my husband's health insurance for a discount and stuff and Lord help us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's all I can say. Um, well, for those of you who don't know Chef AJ, she's an amazing, not only chef, but comedian extraordinaire and just has a wealth of information, has done tons of things, YouTube channels, books on process, you know, the, the ultimate weight loss program. So there's so much to Chef AJ. Right. So, but before we go there, I want to know where did Chef AJ start with her, you know, just like, where do you like to start? Like, for example, like when did you first become plant-based? I know it's been a long time. Well, Three days, I'll be vegan for 40 years. So I started, so I I was an early adopter. I don't know too many people that have been vegan as long as I have, other than maybe Dr. Alan Goldhammer and Dr. Doug Lyle, maybe Dr. McDougal. But yeah, I, I, I was an early adopter. I was vegan before it was fashionable or cool, before I think I even knew the word vegan. And I was a freshman at the University of Pennsylvania in 1977. I wanted to be a doctor of doggies. I wanted to be a veterinarian. But instead, I became a vegetarian because they required us freshmen to to do vivisection, basically. And I, I didn't even know that word back then, but I knew I didn't want to do it. And I did it one time. I cut off the head of a, a live salamander and I puked my guts out and I became an instant vegan. Anybody that's struggling with whether they should do it, just <laughs> get into that situation. It's really, it was really... I was, I felt terrible. And I, the only reason I did it is because there wasn't anybody to defend me not to do it like a Dr. Neil Barnard or a PCRM. And, you know, when somebody's wearing a white coat and in a pish position of authority and telling you what to do and your future depends on it, you sometimes do it. I mean, I'm not happy that I did it, but actually I am because that's what made me an instant vegan actually. So that one salamander had to sacrifice his life so that I could save infinitely thousands more over. Cause I, I, I hear that like every year you're vegan, you save like hundreds of animals not eating them. So 40, I mean, think about how many animals I saved. So I'm sorry to the salamander, but thank you for teaching me that it's not right to, to eat, wear, or experiment on any living creature for really any reason. Right. Exactly. So 1977, mm-hmm. and obviously there's no internet. I'm sure there's no very internet. few books, if any, on eating a vegan diet or even what that meant. I mean, nope. did you even have the word vegan? Didn't I mean, have the word vegan. And I didn't even know what to eat because there, there was no, like you say, no internet, no PCRM. And, uh, you know, so I ate junk. I mean, I, the thing is the smart thing would have been to eat fruits and vegetables, whole grains and legumes, which is what I eat now. They didn't have any analogs back then. There was no day of cheese or gardening meat or Boca burgers. They didn't even have powdered soy milk, let alone all the plethora of plant milks in a box. So I ate crap. I ate French fries. I ate, uh, you know, I ate vegan desserts. I ate potato chips. They were vegan. I drank Dr. Pepper, which I believe is vegan, and Coke Slurpees. So I became a junk food vegan uh, or a junkitarian, if you will. And it did not serve me well in terms of either health or my weight because I ballooned up to almost 200 pounds and actually developed the beginning of colon cancer, which is interesting because we know that colon cancer is strongly linked to animal products, especially processed meats. Well, I wasn't eating those. So how can you explain it other than the fact that I was eating just dessert, basically, caffeine, sugar, flour, oil, and I was eating no fruits and vegetables. So even if people aren't going to be vegan, I mean, not eating fruits and vegetables is probably the stupidest thing you could do in terms of- I agree a hundred percent. So 
Wow. So when did you discover the health issue with the polyps, so the precancerous polyps? January 1st, 2003, I started bleeding profusely. And that's when they wouldn't do a colonoscopy because the HMO I had in the time said that I didn't have a first degree relative die of colon cancer. It was just my grandmother and my uncle. So they, they agreed to do a sigmoidoscopy, which doesn't even go all the way up. And, and my sigmoid colon was riddled with what they called precancerous or edematous polyps that were bleeding and large. And they said that if they weren't removed, I would develop colon cancer. And they couldn't remove them because my colon was in such a state of ill health from eating basically no real food for 43 years. And so they told me I would have to come back and actually have them removed surgically because they couldn't remove them during the, uh, with the calibers. There were too many and they were too large and they were bleeding. And plus there was, my colon was impacted with fecal matter because even with the prep, I, they, I couldn't clean myself out because, you know, basically, you know, I didn't eat any fiber for 43 years. And when you don't eat fiber, you basically don't poop, you know, which is like crazy. I mean, I know now why I did it. I was a food addict. I didn't know that back then, but nevertheless, I, I refused the operation. And instead I went to the Optimum Health Institute in near San Diego. I would have probably gone to True North had I heard about it, but I went there. It changed my life because there were doctors and nurses there that said that what we eat actually makes a difference in our health, how we look, how we feel, what diseases we get, what diseases we can reverse. And there were people there that would come every Friday with stories of healing from incurable diseases, AIDS, lupus, Lyme's disease. And I thought, wow, cancer. I mean, like, this is nothing. I'm I'm in the pre-stage. This will be a piece of kale to reverse. And I did. And I followed the diet, for which was instead of a junk food vegan diet with my four food groups, sugar, caffeine, chocolate, and flour, basically. It was whole food. It happened to be raw. I think I probably could have done the same outcome if I had eaten you know, cooked food, but it, this one happened to be raw. And I followed the diet for about six months. I actually followed the diet for about two years, but I followed it really diligently for six months. And then I went back to my HMO and again, pleaded for a colonoscopy. They refused again, but they agreed to do the repeat sigmoidoscopy. And they found that my colon was now clear, clean, vascular, and pink, like they said, like a newborn baby. And it was the same gastroenterologist doing the procedure. And he said, where did I have my surgery? And I said, I didn't have surgery. He goes, well, where are your polyps? Because we have photographs of every single one, how big they are. We know what size they are and where they are located. And you don't have any. And I said, well, you know, I just changed my diet. And he goes, well, that's impossible. And he stormed out of the room. And the second GI doctor assisting, I think she was from India. She goes, I believe you. And so my life changed. I took a leave of absence from my job. I went to culinary school, not because I wanted to be a chef, but because the food that they gave us at Optimum Health was like not that good. It was like sprouts and seed cheese and, you know, no sugar, oil, salt, which is what I eat now. But I, you know, I didn't know how to spice things. And so I knew if I was going to stick with this long term, it would have to taste a little bit better than it did at Optimum Health. And then I went to culinary school and then, you know, as we say, the rest is history. Wow. So it actually prompted you that experience to become a chef. And then yeah, I mean, it, it prompted me to go to culinary school. I, again, it took a while to become quote a chef because I wasn't really interested in being a chef. I had a real job where I actually made more money than I did being a chef, but I needed to learn how to make healthy food taste delicious. Oh, wow. So yeah. I've, the Optum Health, is it still around? Yeah, it's great. Actually, it's uh, it's in. There's one branch in Lemon Grove, which is near San Diego, and there's one in Austin, and it's very affordable. It's about the same price as True North. The only thing is, is there is no medical care there. So mm. if somebody has a medical issue, I would refer them to. True North instead, but if somebody is there just to detox or to rest, it's it's a great place. There's it's a three week program. You can break it up. I still have yet to do my third week, but I, I, I but it's great. And if people like a smaller experience, the Austin Texas one has I think room for twenty five people, and it's a little fancier. And the San Diego one has room for about three hundred people. And I met people from all over the world that are still my friends today. It's, it's it was a fun experience. But again, I haven't been there in, in over twelve years. But I really wow. it did change my life. I learned a lot there that, 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 uh, you know, I carry with me today. Like one of the things they said is that does you probably know this as a doctor that all the root of all, pretty much all disease is inflammation somewhere in the body. And if you're eating things that are inflammatory, like animal products and oil and salt and sugar and caffeine, well, you're, you're going to have inflammation and whether it's a stage four cancer or common cold inflammation is somewhere in the body. But if you eat anti-inflammatory foods like fruits and vegetables, then 
you don't have this level of inflammation in your body. And it really made sense. But you know, as you know, you probably didn't get much nutritional training in medical school. And how can we expect our doctors to know something that, first of all, they didn't even learn and that those that learned it aren't required to remember it even for the test. So that's why it was very refreshing to hear from actual doctors and nurses that, 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 that food is medicine. Like, like Hippocrates said, you know, let food be thy medicine, let medicine be thy food. It's, it, it's, it's so obvious that, that every doctor, now that we know this, just doesn't like jump on the bandwagon. It, it astounds me because, you know, I always believe that, that people are for the most part doing the best they can, but when they know better, they have the onus to do better. And unless some doctor has his head buried in the sand and refuses to watch forks over knives or you know read prevent reverse heart disease with a China study, how could they not change the way they practice medicine knowing this? That 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 to me is almost criminal, you know. Yes, and yes, That's- and yes again. Yeah, I agree hundred percent because when that information was presented to me, it was like an overnight decision. Like there was no problem. That's what all the smart doctors say. I just interviewed Dr. Lim and he said, you know, he was a paleo guy and Dr. Furman comes on a infomercial or something and he goes, well, he checked out the book and it's like literally changed overnight, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So now you finished culinary school and you were doing it just to, were you doing it just for your own benefit of making the food taste better? to learn how to make food taste better. I was teaching cooking at a vegetarian or a vegan culinary school, just dabbling in it. But, you know, it's not like my dream was ever really to be a chef. But what happened was, is after I got out of culinary school, I actually tried to apply for a few jobs. And I realized that I would make like something like a third of what I was making at my real job, which was an activity director at a retirement home. So I couldn't really afford to be a chef, but then things changed and I got a different job where I did end up being a pastry chef for a few years, vegan pastry chef at a restaurant. Cause I really kind of wanted that on my resume and I wanted some, some actual practical experience. And then, you know, I wrote my book and now I'm chef AJ. <laughs> wow. So now somewhere in there is this comedian, you know, yeah. that just, I, well, I, I, where did that fit in? Cause I mean, yeah, you've been on you know, television so, and well, Okay, so that's really, you know, it's funny that you, you mentioned that because if I'm being really honest, you know, that, you know, sometimes you don't pursue your dreams because you're afraid you're not going to achieve them. And, and, and the reason I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable saying that now is because I'm finally back doing comedy again, which is what I love. And I took a break for almost 30 years, almost 30 years, because I, uh, that really what I wanted to be was it not, not, we didn't want to be like a famous actress, like, you know, Meryl Streep. I didn't think I had that in me. Plus I was fat. And you know, if you're fat in LA and an actress, you're not going to get those kind of roles. They basically tell you you're fat. The best you can do is do comedy. You'd be like the best friend. Like they said, like the back then it was like, you'd be like Rhoda Morgenstern on the Mary Tyler Moore show. That's the best you're going to be. Because, you know, because fat girls just, I mean, now they have a show with a girl that's, that's, that's quite, obese, but for the most part, you don't get a lot of jobs in Hollywood if you're fat, you know, and if you're fat in LA, if you're 10 pounds overweight in LA, you're you're fat. So, so, but I did always love comedy because I grew up the class clown. I was looking, we just had our 40th high school reunion and I was looking at the yearbook and it said, you know, my name, my legal name is Abby J. And it said, you know, biggest talker, class clown and how all these, uh, you know, these things, because I, I just always loved it wasn't so much that I love being funny, but I loved making other people laugh because to me, like, that's like a high, like when you can make somebody laugh, it's just, it makes you feel good and it makes them feel good too. You know, it releases endorphins and things like that. And so I didn't pursue my dream at all until I was 25 because my family was a medical family. My grandfather was a doctor. His son was a doctor. Um, my mother worked for a doctor. Both of my brothers became doctors. Most of my cousins and nieces and nephews, it's like you basically uh, you became a doctor. Like that, there was really not other choice. And I, my sister became a CPA. She, she, you know, she was like, the, well, I was the black sheep, but she was, you know, she wants you to become a doctor. It's like, we're Jewish. Like, you know, you, you know, you know, the old saying is like, when in Judaism, when does a fetus become a human being? The day it graduates medical school, you know? And so, you know, that's what was expected. Well, I didn't want to be a doctor because human body parts kind of gross me out, but I always loved animals. So if you're okay, I'll be a doctor of, of animals. I'll be a veterinary medical doctor. But what I really wanted to do was to do comedy, but I didn't think I had the chops and I didn't really have anybody to support me. Even though when I was 27 years old, I was on The Tonight Show. Actually, I was on The Tonight Show the first time when I was 14 years old, actually. And I got my taste right then. And it's like I was bit by the show Bizbug. And at that time, I was only 14 years old. And actually, Johnny Carson was off that night. Because in those days, Johnny Carson took Mondays off and there was a guest host 
which originally was Joey Bishop, and then it became Joan Rivers. And so I was on with Joey Bishop. I don't think I'll ever be able to find that footage unless I pay a lot of money. But that was like just the most extraordinary uh, experience for a 14-year-old. In those days, The Tonight Show was taped a day before. So I, now it's taped at five and it, it airs at, I think, 11 or 11.30. But then I had plenty of time to tell people. And I just, I, it was just like beyond my wildest dreams because to me that growing up, that was the greatest show in the world to be on. So I had achieved that dream, but I really wanted to be on with Johnny, you know, because he was always to me the, the, just the late night King and just, 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 you know, like, uh, like the Dr. McDougal of show business or whatever. And so I manifested that dream when I was 27 and it was incredible. And then in 29, I was on the anniversary show and I'd been on other shows like Letterman and I did some stand up. But I never really went full force balls to the walls because, you know, I come from a family of fear based, you know, you got to have a real job, you know, you know, and, and my dad would say, well, if you didn't make it in show business by the time you're 30, you're not going to make it. So I, I sort of put the, that dream on the shelf because what I really loved wasn't so much acting, even though I took acting class and I, I was okay in roles. I loved improv. I loved getting up there live, not knowing what I was going to say or what I was going to do. And, you know, that's really kind of what I wish I could have been when I grew up. But the reason I'm bringing this up now is finally at the age of almost 60, three weeks ago, I went back and I'm studying improv again with a wonderful teacher. And it's like, even if nothing comes of it, it's the, it's the greatest three hours of my week. And, and it helps me because when you can do improv, you know, when you speak professionally, like I do, things go wrong. The PowerPoint doesn't work. People make silly comments from the audience and it helps you really be in the moment because so much of our life is orchestrated and planned that it's really like the ultimate freedom. So, you know, they say it's never too late to have a second childhood. So I don't know where this is going to go, but I've never been happier in my life than when I am doing improv. And when I do chefing, it's improvisational. Like when I do my cooking demos, it's not scripted. I mean, I know what recipes I'm going to make, but I don't know what I'm going to say. But when I do the PowerPoints, which are important, because what I think what I have to say is important, I sort of have to follow a little bit of a script. So, um, that's where the comedy came from. People can see me on The Tonight Show if they go to YouTube and put in three words, nose, flute, girl, and they can see my best performance on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. It's 10 minutes. And if they go to YouTube and they put in vegan, I think it's vegan comedian, they can see my last performance at the improv. But for the most part, I'm pretty much haven't done much in 30 years and I'm back baby I'm going to do it this time I just that's that's what I want to be when I grow up and with this diet I could live for a really long time and I might be able to manifest my dream of being the oldest improvisational comedian either on the grounding stage or on television because that's really what I wanted to do and now I'm getting a chance to do it again <laughs> I have so many questions that stem yeah. just from that little I don't even know where to begin. Okay, oh. wait a minute. First of all, nose flute girl. Yeah, so on the Tonight Show, <laughs> I play two flutes through my nose, blowing bubble gum through my mouth, standing on my head. And what I love about this clip is I, you know, I weighed 60 pounds more, more than 60 pounds more than I weigh now. So when people see me, they go, well, you don't understand what it's like to be overweight or obese. And I'm like, yeah, I was for 52 years. Look at that. I, I don't have a lot of photos because of the earthquake. Everything was destroyed in my apartment in 1994. I have a pair of shorts from when I was real, my heaviest. But if they go to that clip, they will see I was I was a large girl nose flute girl okay yeah, okay okay yeah this I'm gonna be putting clips on this one for sure oh, no, um please do. oh my gosh okay so nose flute girl <laughs> yeah, that's, well that's yeah that's what the, it's not on my channel because I can't yeah. put it on my channel because but somebody else found the clip and did it so that was very nice of them <laughs> All right. So, and okay. So now you're talking about improv. So this is going in a whole other direction. Okay. That's what I, that's why I love talking to you because I, I love this so much. When you say those are the three best hours of oh, your week. week and you're doing improv with a coach, what are you doing? I mean, I'm really curious. Yeah, so, so, so my teacher's name is Patrick Bristow. If you Google him, he used to be on the Ellen show and he is a, just a terrific improvisational comedian himself. So what we do, well, we do exercises. The class has about 10 or 12 people and we do scenes, but the scenes aren't scripted. So you go on stage, either you're assigned a partner or he says two people up or three people up and they'll give you like usually a who, what, where from the audience. And and they'll shout out, you know, uh, brother and sister um, shopping for bathing suits at Kmart. And that's all you know. And boom, and you have to create a scene. And hopefully it's funny. And it usually is. And 
it's just, you know, it's wonderful. Like I had a cousin that was um, taught in an ad agency in Chicago and he would send his advertising copywriters to improv at Second City, not to be comedians, but because anytime you're doing something creative, like whether it's writing a book or doing music, it just, it, improvisational comedy is really the finest training ground for any any type of modality. I mean, especially, you know, we have a lot of great speakers in the plant-based movement, but they kind of just stand there and say, uh, uh, you know, and this improv just opens you up to a world of being in the moment because in life, people don't really listen. They think they're listening, but really they look like they're listening, but they're thinking about what they're going to say next. You can't do that in improv. In improv, nothing is scripted. You better listen. Or, you're, or the scene is going to bomb. So it's it's pretty extraordinary. that. And now I'm thinking of leaving LA and it's like, oh no, I finally found a teacher, but we'll see what happens. I'm here for at least another six months and, and you know, I'll find it. Uh, now that I've, I've re, you know, I've, I've reactivated my passion. So I'm going to find it somewhere. I know I am because I'm, I'm ready. So this, this whole vegan thing was just really a detour. No, <laughs> just kidding. Cause I, I mean, seriously though, I mean, I am, I'm an ethical vegan. I'm a health vegan. And I'm, if, if somebody say, said to me, what are you most proud of. It's the fact that, uh, that I've been vegan for 40 years and just the number of animals I've saved and the number of people that I've helped inspire not eat animals. That's what I'm most proud of. But if you ask me what's most fun, it's, it's when I'm doing comedy. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So where are you thinking of going? Well, we're going to look in Palm Desert. And actually, interestingly enough, my improv teacher lives there. So he said maybe he'd start a class, but it's just time to get out of LA. I've been here almost my entire life. It's getting very crowded and I need a little bit of a calmer kind of um, lifestyle. So we're going to look in Palm Desert um, in a few weeks and you never know. And it's only two hours from LA on a train. So I'd still be in California. I can't imagine the word Chef AJ with calm. Yeah, no, no, no. that's the thing because I'm not calm. I need my environment and I need the people around me to be calm. So my husband gotcha. is the calmest man. My dog is the calmest dog because I'm just wired this way. You know, you know, I don't use caffeine or any stimulants. It's, this is, it's, it's, it's partly the plants and partly genetics. And uh, so because I'm so hyper, I need my you know, my friends tend to be not, I don't I, like does not always attract like it, opposites do attract. So I tend to go for people that are calmer, quieter, you know, it just, it's nice because it helps. And even with it, actually I didn't meditate today. So even with meditation, I'm still kind of like up here. <laughs> You know, I think it's a Jewish thing. I think my people, I think it's an, we're an anxious people, you know, we had to, we had to get out of the desert really fast, you know? And, and uh, so <laughs> well, speaking of your comment, we have common friend JP, yeah. Jean Pierre, and he's he, he is he is like a monk. I swear, yeah, if he ever is. there was one, and he's such a sweetheart. Um, so wow, there's even more I could go here. I really love that because I like to speak when I do speaking. I have a very brief PowerPoint, and then I just like to kind of improvise. But this reminds me of I was on the uh, speech club in high school, mm-hmm. and we did improv. And right. would have stuff. So that was really fun. But it's fun. and you know, if you go to Toastmasters, which I've never really dabbled in, some of the clubs actually do these improv mm-hmm. exercises. Because when you think of it, most people that give PowerPoints have a QA, at least partly afterwards. That's an improv. Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't know what the audience is gonna ask, and sometimes they ask really stupid things. And you know, sometimes they even heckle you. And, and so it's really, it's really good when you have this training just to be prepared for life. You know, know, when you think about like the martial arts, what self-defense trains you for is to not fight or is to, to be able to, to, you know, somebody punches you, you learn to respond by deflecting their punches and what improv just, it just trains you just how to respond. And, 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 and so here's the other thing. It's also the scariest form of acting there is. There's no script. There's no director. It's just you. And if you can do improv, you can do anything. That's the thing in life. You know, you can do the hardest thing in the world, everything. Then, I mean, when people say, well, don't you get nervous speaking in front of a thousand people? No, because I've done stand up. You know, that I get nervous when people expect me to be funny. But when I'm talking about calorie density, a subject near and dear to my heart that I feel I'm somewhat of an expert in, I don't get nervous if there's 10,000 people there. I get pretty nervous when I'm in front of my class and have to go up there and I don't know what is going to get created, but it's, it really is. It's, it's just, it would be fun. Like, wouldn't that be like vegan improv? Maybe I'll create some kind of vegan improv group. We should totally do vegan improv. I would love to be part of that group. <laughs> it's so fun. So, it's, and I, I agree. I think we, you know, the physicians, 
number one, there's a lot of old white men who I respect and the gurus, but it's time yeah. to bring in a, a fresher, Actually, younger we need to do a conference with young hip chicks like us. I've always wanted to do something like a woman's empowerment conference. I mean, JP could be there because even though he's a man, he's, he's really so for women and women's rights and things like that. But it really is time because, you know, like, like, like you, all the male gurus, I admire them. I love them, but man, we need, we need one of us to come, you know, mm -hmm. I need a fresh energy, fresh, yeah, fresh generation for sure. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So you wrote the book unprocessed. Mm -hmm. And so tell us about that because you have an interesting, um, journey. You said you were a junk food vegan and then you had all that, but just tell us how you, um, when you talk about calorie density and the line and where you should be yeah. eating, cause I think that's really, yeah. really helpful for patients, um, yeah. or people when they're trying to lose weight and, and they get stuck on this plateau. Yeah. So Unprocessed was, believe it or not, written in 2010, which is one year before I went to True North and learned everything I know about weight loss and calorie density, which is in my next book, soon to be released, called The Secrets to Ultimate Weight Loss, how to, what's it called, a, a revolutionary approach to conquer cravings, overcome food addiction, and lose weight without going hungry. I really wanted to call it Eat Up, Slim Down, which was Dr. Goldhammer's suggestion, but it was taken. Um, so what Unprocessed is, it really is the first half of the equation of calorie density because the idea behind Unprocessed was what, something that Jack Lane said over 80 years ago, which is if God made it, eat it. If man made it, don't eat it. So even if somebody is unwilling to be vegan, there's still no reason, in my opinion, to eat processed food, at least no health reason. There's, there's no requirement for the body. And in fact, it's probably very deleterious to your health to eat processed food or to eat it in any discernible amount. So the idea behind unprocessed was not eating food from a can, a box, a bottle, or a bag, the way our ancestors ate throughout most of human history and how people in healthy parts of the world still eat today. And so there's 190 recipes and they're sugar-free, oil-free, salt-free. They don't have flour or gluten, but they are of a higher caloric density because I use things like nuts in place of flour and dates in place of sugar. They're still very healthy for people that don't suffer from weight issues or food addiction. So this tells a little bit of my story growing up, but it doesn't, it's sort of like the Reader's Digest, more of the Disney version. Then, then when I went to True North in 2011 and really learned I really, that's where I learned the secrets to ultimate weight loss. Then I was able to write this second book, which I think it's going to, I think it's going to be a good book. I mean, I've got wonderful people that have endorsed it, like Dr. Esselstyn, who wrote the foreword, who actually uses my calorie density chart in his PowerPoint, as do two doctors that teach at medical schools. So the whole idea behind weight loss in general, my program, Ultimate Weight Loss specifically, is calorie density. And again, I'm trying to make it funnier, but it's, it's like, this is, this is the hard part, is when I teach calorie density, I'm using one side of my brain. I believe it's the right side. When I'm doing improv, I'm using the other side. So I have to learn, I have to sometimes be able to jump back and forth. But the idea is, is that diets don't work because if they did, then we wouldn't have something like three-fourths of people overweight and half of them obese. Because when people go on diets, ultimately they go off the diet because they're, they're doing something that requires them to eat less food, like counting calories or counting carbs or points. And, um, I, I should say the diets do work. Absolutely, they do work. But for most people, they're not sustainable because they're eating less food than they want. But if you understand calorie density, and by the way, I didn't invent it. I mean, it, it's been around since food's been around. And there's several plant-based doctors that have written best-selling books based on the principle, like Dr. Dean Ornish, who wrote eat more, weigh less in 1980. And if you understand calorie density and use it with a whole food approach, you can eat more and weigh less. In fact, twice as much food, yet taking in half as many calories. Or Dr. McDougall in 1985 wrote another best-selling book called The McDougall Program for Maximum Weight Loss, which is based in the principle of calorie density. And even though I had both of those books, I had actually not read them. But I was wandering in Burbank, California, one Friday night, we'd gone to the movies, and they, they had this thing called the Dollar Bookstore. And I used to love going there because you come home, $20, you got 20 books. And I had picked up a book there called Volumetrics by Dr. Barbara Rolls. Not vegan, but very much emphasizing fruits and vegetables. She's a person at Plant, Plant, Plant State, Penn State University, who's done the most research on the field of calorie density than anyone else. She'd make a great guess for you because just she's so knowledgeable about this subject because she studies human eating behavior at her laboratory. And what I liked about her book 
she had a lot of pictures and I love pictures. So she would show that for the same amount of calories and a quarter cup of raisin, I could have two cups of grapes. And she had all these visual representations, which now I've use in my PowerPoint, not hers, but, but actually from a professional photographer. And it really made me understand this principle of calorie density. It's sort of like if I have a piggy bank, I could put in a $5 bill and, and there wouldn't, it, it, it would be $5, but the bank would be very, have a lot of more room for money. Or I could put in five $1 bills, or I could put in 25 quarters or 50 dimes or a hundred nickels or 500 pennies. So that's calorie density. So when I see it visually, like I do now with these different jars, I'm like, oh, okay. If I want to be full, I can have a tablespoon of oil for 120 calories and 14 grams of fat, or I could have two pounds of zucchini with no fat, what's going to fill me up more? And so when I understood that, it was really easy to simply change the average calorie density of the food I was eating by omitting high fat foods like oil, which is 4,000 calories a pound, and increasing the foods that are lowest in calorie density, which are also the most nutritious, like fruits and vegetables for one, two, 300 calories a pound. And instead of avoiding carbs, because I thought they were bad, like potatoes and rice and beans at four or five, 600 calories a pound, I would now maximize them and eliminate the high fat plant foods I was eating, like the nuts and the seeds at 3000 calories a pound and the sugar and flour that I was eating at 15 to 1800 calories a pound. And so it really wasn't difficult because I'm a, I'm what I call a volume eater. I, and, and I think most people really are, if they're really honest, unless they've had gastric bypass, because we need a certain amount of food to feel full. Dr. Rolls discovered that for most people, that's about three to five pounds of food per day and that everybody eats about that. Doesn't mean that like we eat the same amount as some Olympic athlete, they might eat more, but that all of us consistently eat the same amount of food per day by weight, which is about three to five pounds. And if we want to continue eating the same amount of food to feel satisfied, but yet taking fewer calories to lose weight, we simply have to change the average calorie density of the food we eat by as little as 500 calories a day and lose a pound a week. And it's actually easy, delicious, sustainable, because you're still eating large volumes of food or perhaps even more food. And what people don't believe, I eat now at 117 pounds more food than I did at 180. I did a video on this on my YouTube channel, Weight Loss Wednesday, I believe it was episode 36. I eat 10 pounds of food a day. And people are like, wow, you have an eating disorder. No, I'm just eating calorie dilute food and I get to eat so much. And the more you eat, I mean, because you know, there's enjoyment in eating and there's satiety in seeing that you're going to eat large volumes of food. These people on these weighing and measuring programs where they're having, you know, two 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 tables, two teaspoons of oil per meal. And, you know, um, I mean, they, first of all, you don't even allow starch on most of these, but, but, you know, they're weighing out, you know, seven ounces of vegetables. I mean, my goodness, I eat more vegetables in a sitting than they do all day. And it's great because satiety actually starts with the eyes. You see large volumes of food as opposed to a little tiny Jenny Craig meal. You expect to be satisfied. You're chewing and eating large volumes of food because that increases satiety and you're eating large volumes of food. So you're activating the mechanisms of satiety known as the stretch receptors. And because it's nutrient dense food, you're activating the nutrient receptors. And because it's calorie dilute food, you're never overeating on calories. And I mean, again, like this is just, I don't, it's like you said, when doctors understand the power of plant-based nutrition, why wouldn't they? When people understand calorie density, it's like, why wouldn't they do it? Well, I know because they're food addicts. And if you understand calorie density, all those addictive foods are to the right of the red line. The animal products, the oil, the alcohol, the flour, the sugar, you know, and these are foods that people want to eat. And so they go to these weighing and measuring programs where maybe they're told not to eat sugar and flour, where they can still have crap food and poison food, but just in little tiny amounts, you know? So it's, I, I feel like I discovered, you know, the, found, I, the fountain of youth. Um, it, I mean, it's, it's great. It's great. And, and I learned this at True North where I would go there and see people that were slender, that were older than me, that were coming out of the dining room with their oversized 11 inch dinner plates with not one, but two plates of food. And I'm like, I don't understand. <laughs> I don't get it, but you know, I did what they did. I did what Dr. Goldhammer said, which is what Dr. McDougall says and Dr. Lyle says. And man, it's, it's great because I love to eat and I can eat a lot and I don't have to weigh and measure my food and I don't have to worry as long as I'm eating the right food. Because as Dr. McDougall says, 
it's the food. <laughs> exactly. And for people on the audio podcast, it, she has a oh, t-shirt that says it's the food. But yeah, no, it's good. Yeah. Yeah. So I know I've seen you at a conference. So tell us what, you, I know what you bring in. So tell us what you yeah. bring when you travel and how you do that. That's incredible. I know. Well, that, that is the thing that is very challenging, I think, for any dietary style, you know, whether it's vegan or, or, or ultimate weight loss or, or people even that are kosher or people with allergies is that you do have to be responsible for your food at all times. And I remember at the conference, you were interviewing me. I was in the splits for the whole 30 minutes because also I exercise now. I didn't used to, but yeah, you know, I'm producing my own conference next week called the ultimate weight loss conference. And there's going to be compliant food in Las Vegas. I never leave anything to chance. I bring my food everywhere partly because I really prefer eating when I'm hungry, not when it says so on the clock that that's when they want me to eat. So that's what I do. But yeah, I was sitting next to Dr. Anthony Lim and he was kind of impressed that, you know, I had, what did I have with me that day? I had, uh, I had roasted Hannah yams, you know, type of like a sweet potato. Um, I, did I have, I, I did, they had salad there. So I ate the salad and the fruit there. I had carrots. I had, uh, I had my steamed zucchini and yeah, I, I just got used to the fact that the world, you know, I think being, being raised Orthodox Jewish kind of helped because, um, we were taught that the world was not set up to support our dietary preferences and that we couldn't expect to go places and just magically have kosher food appear. And so we learned at a very young age that we had to basically fend for ourselves in these situations. And then becoming vegan at the age of 17, I also knew that the world was not set up because there was no vegan restaurants back there. There maybe was one vegetarian restaurant called Follow Your Heart, but I knew that the world was not set up to support my dietary preferences. Also, I'm somebody with food allergies and I have to be careful. So it never really, I mean, it, it can be difficult at first learning to navigate this, but I'm not resentful about it because I'm actually grateful and joyous because my food is actually better than 99% of the food that I encounter anywhere. And it's not because I'm a chef. It's because I've neuroadapted to a whole food plant-based diet without sugar, oil, salt, so that everything I eat is delicious. And I've really never been in a situation where somebody else's food was better. So I get a cooler and it looks like, see, I'm a, I'm a woman. So I get a, a purse. It's a cooler purse. And they come in sizes that are large and medium and small so that when I go into the movie theater, not that I would be eating in the movie theater, but I did this happen when I went to the, um, to the Pantages to see the play Book of Mormon, because it was at an odd time and I knew I might be hungry. It looks exactly like a woman's purse. And so for the most part, I just get into places. Every now and then places check and if they see it's food, they might want to say they, they have to take it away, in which case I say, I'm sorry, I'm diabetic. You can't. And they'll say, well, we're going to take it away while you're in the theater, but if you need it, you come get it. Because they try to do that in places, you know, like amusement parks, but they, it is illegal. To my knowledge, it is illegal. And I'll, I'll, if I ever have to get a doctor's note, I will. But also, I'm kosher. Even though I don't practice Orthodox Jewish anymore, everything I eat is kosher, so I'm kosher. So what are they going to say? You know, they, they don't offer kosher food or UWL food or healthy, healthy food anywhere. So, you know, if you think about, you have kids, and I don't know what you did when they were little, but my friends that have kids, when they go anywhere, even for an hour, they got this bag with them with like everything from diapers to milk to juice to, to, to food to toys to wet naps. And I'm like, I'm thinking like, my God, you're going for an hour, but that's what you do for a baby that you take care of your baby that way. You don't leave anything to chance. You don't go to Costco and if and just hope that there's going to be a diaper there or food. And, and it's just like, you have to nurture yourself that way. And yeah, it can be a pain in the butt. You can get resentful or you can just be joyous that, wow, I get to eat delicious food. You know, when I travel, which is almost every week, almost invariably the TSA agent, it, it, it triggers the machine. I think it's the ice chip. And so they have to take it aside and they have to open it out. And I packed it and they have to take everything out. So the TSA agent will see, you know, all my sweet potatoes and my apples and my vegetables. And he'll say, or she'll say, she'll say, oh, so you bring all your food for the week? And I go, no, sir, or ma'am, that is just for today. Um, so that's always fun when that happens. And um, yeah, I mean, I'm used to it. It's, you just have to learn to do that because I've done webinars, how to eat healthfully anywhere. You can get on my YouTube page and on my website. But remember, if you're following a health-promoting version of a plant-based diet, meaning no oil, especially if you're doing no sugar and flour and salt, other than maybe a fruit or vegetable here and there, you're not really going to find food at a, even at a vegan restaurant. So, you know, um, I'm used to it. I've been doing it for six years. I don't mind. I'm, I mean, I just 
just like just like being an asthmatic, just like I would take my asthma medicine, like a diabetic would take their insulin. I just take my sweet potatoes. And, you know, there was a president, I think it was, was it Harry Truman that said a chicken in every pot? I would like people to vote for a potato in every purse. If you have a potato or a sweet potato with you, you won't succumb to cravings. You'll have enough fuel to get to whatever you have to to get appropriate food. I mean, fruits and vegetables are great, but they're too calorically dilute. They're not satiating. But if you just learn to carry starch with you, like a, like a cooked potato doesn't even need to be refrigerated. You are set. And you can even go to Wendy's. Not that I like to support fast food restaurants, but you can get plain baked potatoes at Wendy's. So that's mm-hmm. always an option too. Absolutely. Wow. There's there's a whole book just in what you were, were yeah, talking absolutely. about. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. Yeah. Wow. So as far as, you know, you hear myths and objections about eating a, a vegan or a healthy plant-based diet. I like how you say a health-promoting plant-based diet because there are differences. Right. What you know, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is this not cooking with oil. So, mm-hmm. you know, when I mention people, oh, I, we don't use oil, they're like, well, how do you do that? How is that even possible? So can you tell us what are the basic concepts of cooking without oil? Right. Well, you know, it's, it's not their fault for it to be so foreign. It's not taught in culinary school. If they look throughout human history, historically, oil wasn't a food. It was a prize at the Olympic Games. That's, I, I, I tried to research this to try to figure out when we started ingesting dairy and oil because historically, we're, we're neither. They, they both are triumphs of marketing over science. And what I got that oil was actually a prize that the Olympic athletes in, you know, used to adorn their body with. It wasn't eaten as food because you know, we couldn't really press olives the way... I mean, you, know, you, you don't squeeze an olive and get olive oil. There's a, there's a big uh, manufacturing process with toxic chemicals like lye. It's it's not like taking an orange and squeezing the juice. And so what I try to explain to people is that it's that for operant health, we want to eat our food whole, not processed. And that if you understand that sugar is a junk food, whether you eat it or not, you have to look at oil the same way because it's you take a whole natural food found in nature with water and fiber, vitamins, minerals, phytochemicals, antioxidants, and micronutrients. You process it into the non-nutritive portion, which is the oil or the sludge, and you throw away all the nutritive portion. But instead of being 1,800 calories a pound like sugar, it's 4,000. It's more than twice as calorically dense. And if they read Dr. Esselstyn's work or watch Forks Over Knives, they'll know that it contributes to obesity, diabetes, and heart disease. And because people that are taught to cook or go to culinary school are always taught to use oil, saute the onion and garlic and oil first, salad dressings have oil, they don't understand that you can eat oil-free food in general and that it can be absolutely delicious even more so. I think it's more delicious because it coats your tongue oil so that you can't taste the flavors in food, so you have to add a lot more seasoning, especially salt. It's not hard to teach people from a culinary standpoint. I do teach classes in LA, both hands-on and demonstration, where I can teach them how easy it is to saute without oil. You just use water or broth, or you can get a good piece of nonstick or or, uh, waterless cookware. So actually, of oil, sugar, and salt, it's probably the easiest thing to not use. You cannot use oil in baking by using prune puree or apple butter or tofu or banana or applesauce. But I think what it is, is because we're basically a nation of food addicts that people like oil because it's the most calorically dense food on the planet, 4,000 calories a pound. And this pleasurable neurotransmitter called dopamine that is produced whenever we have a pleasurable experience, the more calorically concentrated the calories, the more dopamine is released. So while people don't sit there and drink oil, when people say, well, I'm, I'm Italian, it's in my blood, I'll go here and drink it. They won't because they'll vomit. It produces so much more dopamine because it's so high fat, high calorie that they like the effect of it more than they actually really like the taste. And that's why it's so hard for people to give up these high fat pleasure trap foods. But Mm -hmm. as far as from a culinary standpoint, not necessary at all, except for frying. And, you know, frying would not be healthy no matter what you're frying, unless you're using the air fryer and frying in the air fryer, which is not using oil. Ah, I haven't. I, do you use the air fryer? Do you like yes, it? Somebody, I love it. Somebody just gifted me the top of the line Breville that's four hundred dollars, and I'm getting to learn to use that one. I'll shoot a video as soon as I can, but I'm still using my little five point three quart. Yes, I love it because it makes the crispiest, crunchiest, most delicious baked fries or sweet potato fries in the world without oil, without salt. I love my air fryer. It's so yummy. So wow. yummy. Wow! Oh, yeah. to look into that. Yep. So you touched a little bit on what I really want to talk to you about is food addiction. Yeah. And I know you traveled down that path. Can you 
share with us kind of the mental component of the food addiction? Because I mean, we understand it's the dopamine, it's the highly palatable foods, the engineered products, the processed foods that are hitting our physical side. But what's going on mentally with a food addiction that, you know, that you feel like you must eat it when you're bored or reward or, you know, with emotions? What was your story? Yeah. So, so I, I kind of look at that food addiction and emotional eating, I kind of think are like kind of two sides of the same coin. They're not exactly the same because the truth is, is um, you can emotionally eat on any food, but w- when you're really a food addict, you, you're looking for specific foods to medicate with. And, and I think the way you differentiate it is what foods are you choosing to eat? Because I've always told people that any, any food will satisfy hunger, but if you require a particular food, then it's then it's food addiction, emotional eating, and it, you know if if somebody is hungry enough to eat some steamed kale or a baked potato, they're probably hungry. But if it has to be high fat kale chips or potato chips or French fries, then it's probably not hunger. It, it, it's emotional eating or food addiction. And food addiction is not yet widely recognized in the larger medical community, and especially in the plant based community. It's not in the DSM yet. I think it will be one day. But I think part of the problem is marketing. It doesn't have a very good name because you really can't be addicted to food or eating. You would die without food. But you can be addicted to particular foods. And the foods that people have the problems with are foods that are processed. Things like sugar, flour, alcohol, dairy. Now, dairy is an animal product, but it's also a processed food. All the other animal products are animal products, but not processed. And so all the food addiction lies in on my calorie density chart in that 1,200 to 1,800 calorie range, which is the flour, the sugar, the alcohol, and, and the dairy. And these foods do not exist in nature. And what they do is they hijack our brain chemistry and as well as our taste buds. They go through this, like sugar and flour, for example, go through the same refining process as drugs and alcohol. And so do the fake sugars, by the way. So I don't recommend the stevia, xylitol, erythritol, mannitol. Those are as bad, if not worse, than sugar for weight loss and for food addiction. And so people, not everybody, by the way, just like, you know, there's people that can drink alcohol frequently or occasionally and not become alcoholics. But if you're an alcoholic, it's not you. And there's people that can eat sugar and flour and all kinds of vegan treats and not be overweight or not be compelled to overeat. But if you're struggling and if you're overweight and if you can't stop eating these foods and crave them all the time, then it's not you. Now, I've heard that it's something like one out of every seven people have this. And food addiction, it's not a diagnosis like diabetes. Like you could have a patient and they have an A1C that's a certain number and you say, okay, you're diabetic. There's no real test or score for food addiction because it's variable. It exists on a continuum. People can be more or less vulnerable to it depending on what's going on in their life. So if I just get back from my improv class and I'm on top of the world or a retreat where I teach at Rancho La Puerta in Mexico, you could probably walk, you know, every kind of sees candy in front of me and I'm not going to blink an eye. But if I just had a fight with my husband or my dog died or I lost my job, you know, then all of a sudden I'm more, you know, susceptible, more vulnerable to, to these, to these foods, especially if I'm not eating well, if I'm not eating a nutrient rich diet, if I'm, you know, if I'm not taking care of myself in other ways like meditation and uh, exercise and stress reduction. So our vulnerability can change over time. And, you know, it's basically, it's craving. What it is, what food addiction is, is craving. And, and, And people, even people that aren't food addicted might say, boy, you know, I have a yen to have Chinese food. That's not food addiction. But when you can't get through a single day without XYZ, usually it's coffee or, you know, or it's usually some kind of sugar or bread or flour, then you might have the leanings of a food addiction. And the problem is, is that all the vegan junk food is the stuff that people are addicted to. And while on one hand, it's wonderful when people don't eat animals, on the other hand, we're creating a lot of overweight, addicted vegans by these foods. And that's the problem. Not to say they should eat animal products because those are addictive as well in different ways, but not to the same way that sugar and flour are. You know, we're meant to go back to unprocessed. We're meant to eat our food whole, not processed. You know, there are I don't know anybody out there that's addicted to wheat berries, but a lot of people are addicted to bread. I don't know anybody that's addicted to barley, but I know a lot of people that are addicted to alcohol. And I don't know anybody that's addicted to beets, but I sure know a lot of people that are addicted to sugar. So it's not 
the carbohydrate. It's the processing and refining of the carbohydrate into these powders or liquids that, that is wherein the food addiction lies. And it's and like I said, you know, a lot of people like I was working with a gentleman the other day that was, you know, in the 400 pound range. He goes, well, I don't think I'm a food addict. And I'm like, uh, kind of think you are, you know, because people don't like the name. They, it's, it's, that's why if we could have a marketing company come and rename the disease to what, as Dr. Ifland says, cravings disorder, where people, because people feel bad. Nobody likes to think of themselves as an addict. We think of maybe somebody like in an alley shooting up heroin. But I got to tell you, when I first discovered food addiction, I was thrilled because now there was a name to what had been going on in my brain for 52 years. And since it was a disease, there was a cure. And the cure is da, 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 a whole food plant-based diet free of sugar, oil, salt, flour, alcohol. Wow. Okay. So 100%, do you think that it's like if you have a food addiction, cravings, whatever, if someone goes to strictly just a whole food plant-based diet, but they don't do any other work, like any internal work, any mindfulness, right. do you think that food addiction can be cured just with the food alone? Or is there other components that you feel that really need to be uh, addressed? That is a great question, and it's going to depend on the individual. It really is, and what's going on in their life. Because, you know, Dr. Doug Lyle always says that he doesn't really believe in emotional eating because he, you know, he believes it's food, it's the food, it's the food. And, 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 and it is the food because you can't, even if you did all the inner work, and even if Sigmund Freud came back and gave you, you know, psychoanalyst, psychoanalysis, if you kept eating junk food, you still aren't going to lose weight and be healthy. But we know that when we lock people up, like Dr. Lyle says, if I locked you up in Cuba and all they fed you in rice and beans, you'd be thin. And it's true because when we lock people up in Santa Rosa jail, the McDougal program or True North, they all get thin, they all get healthy. That said, when you have emotional stuff going on, it often makes it harder to stick to a healthy eating plan because people don't just eat for hunger and survival anymore. They eat for myriad other reasons, like they're angry or bored or lonely or tired, or stressed. So I think it's good to do both. Not one, not the other. Because I, I know all these emotional eating people that only focus on the emotions and you know forgiving your parents. All that stuff is great, by the way. You should do it. But if you're still eating crap, you're not going to get healthy. And if you're eating a perfect diet, and you know, there are people that probably don't need to do the inner work. There's people that have had pretty good lives, like my husband, not a lot of trauma or drama. You know, somebody like him maybe don't, doesn't have to deal with it. But I think for the most part, if you could do both and preferably at the same time, that's what we do with the Ultimate Weight Loss Program. We deal with the emotions and the food. But I do think you got to learn to get the food right. And then a lot of times that emotional stuff gets dialed down because if you're anxious, if you're depressed, well, having caffeine and alcohol and sugar and flour, these make you more anxious and more depressed. Well, when you eat a whole food plant-based diet, you actually, some of that mental stuff, you actually start feeling less crazy in your brain. Your brain calms down. You can stabilize. That said, if you had a history of abuse or trauma, of course, even if you're not a food addict, you still need to deal with that. So I think to become a whole person, you not only have to need whole food, but you have to do some kind of other work, which again, this is, you know, with the exception of like, you know, maybe Dean Ornish, maybe Ben Brown, who is the medical director for Ornish. We're not seeing a lot of that in the plant-based community because we're told it's the food, it's the food, it's the food. And yes, it is the food. However, we're whole people, we're whole people with emotions and feelings. So get the food right and then get the mental, emotional, or spiritual help you need. And you're going to be great. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Because I, I like how you put it that we're, you know, part of the whole food is to create a whole person. Mm -hmm. And we're not just food. We are the emotions, the experiences, our spiritual needs, our relationship needs, all of that, I think is you're you're 100% correct. And mine, what I've really noticed is that when people eat a whole food plant-based diet, the depression does get better, Absolutely. the anxiety gets better, and it puts them in a place that they can actually heal better with Absolutely. emotional input. And as physicians, I don't think we're really, one, we're not qualified, at least I don't think so in our training, to take care of all these chronic disease patients. I mean, I understand, you know, we learn one disease at a time, but we don't understand, you know, when we throw in the, lots of different um, drugs and then it's one disease on top of another. If we never address the core root, which is the food, we're just adding on top of one thing on another. But we always focus, oh, you need to send you to a therapist or start an antidepressant, but we never look at the food. But if we help with the food, maybe that would help with the rest of it. And so it's very synergistic. And I, I love that. 
Well, it's you know, they, you know, there's an old saying of hunger's not the problem, food's not the solution. And it's not, it's often not what is eating the person, but it's not often what, it's often not what they're eating, but what's eating them. And mm-hmm. so, you know, and that's why I think, you know, like you said, the food, it can help with anxiety and depression. It can all, exercise can help with that too. It's the most underutilized antidepressant. So it's just, you know, it's lifestyle. It's lifestyle. You know, I, I think meditation is great or any kind of stress reduction. I think we live in a time now that all these devices that we have, like our iPhones, that that are supposed to save us time, they actually end up making us more stressed because we are Mm -hmm. so addicted now. It's, you know, some people aren't addicted to food, but they're addicted to technology. You know, I have all the notifications turned off on my phone. So I don't know when there's a Facebook post or a text unless it's from my husband, because that has made us just as, is, is, um, is addicted, you know, Mm-hmm. is the food. And a lot of people that have addictions have cross addictions. And so, yeah, we are set up in a world that, that it's very easy to become addicted to one thing or another. And a lot of times if you have one addiction, it's very easy to develop another and just, you know, spend your life just switching addictions. Right. Well, in, in substance abuse, I'd call it cross addiction. So a right. lot of times, um, you know, like Adam Sud's story is really powerful in that sense yeah. that, you know, you go from drug abuse to food addiction. There's this, there is a definite, um, you know, a a propensity to do that. So that's really interesting because, you know, we've gone a whole year now without television, at least in this apartment. And I've actually really don't miss it, but it's really funny how people get really stressed about it, about, you know, well, how do you know, as far as like, you know, the, what's going on in emergencies. It's like, I'm pretty sure all people will be telling me. (laughs) I don't, I I have Gmail so that I don't have to see any of the news. I don't watch the news and you're right. Believe me, people will tell you, you can't go on. I mean, unless you stay in your house and don't talk to people, anytime something happens in the world that you need to know about, you'll find out. When the the wall came down in Berlin, I, I mean, people said the wall came down. I'm like, what wall? Whaling Wall, Great Wall of China. Because really, I haven't watched the news since probably 1977. I can't. I'm highly sensitive, and and the world just depresses me. So if I'm going to do what I'm going to do, I have to st- stay disconnected from current events. It doesn't mean I don't care. By the way, I care deeply, and that's why I can't know. I mean, right. like you say, somebody will tell me. Yeah, if it's worth me. knowing. Right. So you are such a passionate individual. So I'm curious, why do you feel so compelled and so driven to share this message? I mean, it's, I could see where you got your own health and regained right. it. What is your passion desire to move forward with others? Tell it because well, you work really, you work a lot. A lot. You, know, you know, it's, I love that you asked that question because uh, I think you're the second person because at, at veg source last year, Jeff Nelson asked that question. And I don't say it often because um, you know, a lot of times the ethical vegans will, I don't want to say bash me, but like they, they say, oh, you know, she's making it too hard for people to be vegan because she's, you know, SOS free and all this stuff. And uh, at the end of the day, my hidden agenda, which is now not hidden because I'm telling you, is is to save animals because it, it, it hurts my heart. It breaks my heart that animals have to go through the torture and abuse. And, uh, you know, even dogs and cats, I, even though they're not eaten in this country, what they have to go through in the animal shelters, I, I value animal life as much as I do human life or fish life and you know knowing John Pierre like we do even even bug life now I mean not that I go around killing bugs but um, there, there's a thing like especially if you work at a restaurant you see a bug you just automatically you know go like that because you want to get your a health rating and he got me this little jar and I and I have what's called the cockroach relocation program in Sherman Oaks so if I see a bug I he crawls into the jar and I take him across the street to the park so I think that um, we're all sentient beings it's not a question of if if you know if we're smart and if we can talk but do they suffer so it's the core of my being if there's anything I can do to get people to not eat animals or eat fewer animals that's really my motivation. But then to add frosting to the cake, once I became slender and I learned how relatively easy and painless and effortless it was to lose weight and maintain it as a female that had been uh, teased and marginalized and not, not so much bullied, but made fun of for being fat for my whole life and the empowerment I felt and the increase in confidence and self-esteem, I wanted to empower people, especially women, because I think they suffer more when they're overweight, that they could do this too. So, uh, you know, just, just helping people be feeling better and saving animals. It's, you know, it's it's the same answer as both because the way to lose weight 
is really by not eating animals and not eating animals and processed foods. So yeah, I, I just, uh, be kind to animals. Don't eat them. And, uh, you know, that's really why I'm here and I will be that way till the day I die. Well, you know, it's funny too, because I think, um, I came into this, not even for my own health, but just because of a patient and, you know, it's a story in itself, but you become more of the ethical component and the environmental component. And it's really interesting how you become more observant of your world when you eat this way. It's not just focused on feeding yourself at the time that you're hungry, driving through the drive-through, you know, whatever. So it's, it's interesting that we move ourselves to a healthier diet and we expand our our worldly observations. And so it's just really interesting how that happened. I mean, cause I always thought, I would always think of myself as a forward thinking individual and looking, you know, doing the right thing, but it wasn't really until I went to a plant-based diet that that really truly happened. And I don't have an answer for it. I don't know if it just, because it, we had this diet addresses a lot of those issues and that becomes part of it, of the message. I don't know, but it's, it's a really cool thing that happens. I think you become less selfish. I don't know how people can call themselves humanitarians while they eat meat because Mm -hmm. when you eat meat, you're making it so that somebody else is starving somewhere else in the world. It's not sustainable. And so I think, I think uh, a paleo diet, I think a meat centric diet is very selfish. And like you say, when you stop eating animals, you just become a more compassionate person. And it's, it's, it's really, it's, it's, I don't know. I can't think of anything better for human health, environmental health, animal health, and um, become a lot less of an asshole. I'll tell you that. (laughs) I can imagine what I'd be like if I was a carnivore. You know, I'm terrible. I'm already pretty, pretty, you know, um, aggressive as it is. So I can't imagine if I was like eating, you know, animal flesh and having all that stuff coursing through my veins. Yeah, absolutely. There's so much to that for sure. Boy, well, I know I've kept you for an hour. And this has been great. I mean, this has been the funnest interview I ever had, and I was sitting Aww. up and in the splits. So, <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll have to post that video, you guys. It's on the Facebook. We got over like fourteen thousand views, That's which great. is well, you, you happened to catch me when I was on a, a stretch break, and so <laughs> yeah. Yeah. that was so much fun. And people are like, "It's really funny how you get different responses too," because you know I'm doing this because I, I want to help people get healthier. Because yeah. for me, it's a matter of I don't think, you know, you go into medicine wanting to keep people sick. Um, at no. least I didn't anyway. And this is what I found to really give people health, but it's so much more. It's the positive psychology that occurs. It's like, you know, that's, that's the other thing I'm really interested in is a is study of people thriving. And this is what allows people to thrive. And, um, I'm not sure where I was going with that, but, oh, you know, it's just, it's just fun to be around people like you that allow us to, to share that, but you know, we're sharing this message and you're, and you're putting yourself in a public space. Um, I'm just a physician trying to share that information, share that, that, and, but you know, I had all these positive reactions to our interview and there's like two of them that were just like, Oh, this is really distracting. This would be good otherwise. And I'm like, who yeah. are you? Yeah, but, you know, <laughs> What's wrong funny. with you? It's funny because I, I, I talked to Dr. Lyle yesterday. He's my friend, but also my psychologist because I have a friend in the plant-based world. It's being, I don't want to say bully, but kind of being, people are being unkind because this person is overweight. And I actually said, this hurts me. Why are people like this? And he basically said that it's like the same thing that I experienced in stand-up comedy. There's always going to be hecklers because they don't have the balls to get up and be on the YouTube, to get up on the stage. And so, because they don't, they can't fulfill their dreams and be speaking to people, which is what they want to do. They got to drag somebody down. And so you got to realize it's about them, which is also, that's why there's a delete button. So when people bash anybody on my page, YouTube, Facebook, goodbye, ban user. Goodbye. That's why I was like, this is like my living room. Yeah. So I'm not going to have someone come and crap in the middle of my my right. space. I'm sorry. Oh. Yeah, exactly. Like, Especially if they're not paying me there. exactly oh my goodness that's fabulous i love it so all righty i know i've kept you for uh, for a while (laughs) soon i've got some new technology that i'm working on i know i'm very curious about that i'm gonna have to youtube this technology now because i'm like what that's fantastic facebook lives remotely i just did my first one with dr women i haven't watched it but i think it was pretty good so that is really cool man awesome so aj chef aj um Thank you so much. Yes, ma'am. I like to end the podcast or YouTube or whatever people are watching this um, with just acknowledgement because 
I think, you know, when people who do this type of work or, you know, they, they go through life and they help so many people that may be able to say thank you or present themselves in front of them and they're working with them so they know how much they've helped. But it's a whole nother thing when you have no idea the thousands of thousands of people that you may have helped. So I just like to say thank you for them and all the good work that you're doing and, and also for the animals because I think, honestly, all these people who say they are animal lovers, they're not animal lovers. You're a your speciesism, right? So, right, right. yeah, or they say they're environmentalists and then they eat meat, you know, it's right. not about driving a Prius, you know, you right? Exactly. And there's so much on that that we could go into, but, um, you love animals, you don't eat them. That's the mm, bottom line. Exactly. And, uh, so thank you for all of those people. Of and, thank um, you. I appreciate so much and, uh, you're amazing. And yeah. I'm sure we'll be uh, talking a lot more and, uh, I hope you guys enjoyed this and I'll probably have to have you on for a second one. Cause I Absolutely. think when my book going. comes out, we'll talk about the book. I, I promise not to be funny. Okay. <laughs> I love <laughs> the funny. The funny is the best I'm part. Funny makes kidding. people subscribe to my podcast. Uh, I'll, I'll, try, I'll try to be funnier. I'll be, I'll, I'll, I'll have a routine by then. I'll be thank you. <laughs> All right. But thank you guys, everyone for listening. And thanks chef AJ. Absolutely. Bye everybody.